welcome back. Here we are again for I Eat Movies number 15. As always, I am your co-host, Mike, joined by my good pal, Dino. What's up, D? Mr. Mike, what's going on? Oh, you know, same old, same old. Just eating movies. <laughs> eating movies. So it is, uh, we are where? So you survived the drive-in season. The drive-in season is open. We both yeah. survived Halloween. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to give ourselves a treat or something, we're doing a single episode. We're doing your first <laughs> time today. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, so tell me about the end of the drive-in season. Well, the end of the drive-in season uh, came for me uh, about the second week of October for Freddy Fest 3. Um, It was kind of odd because I definitely planned on doing a few more shows before the season closer. Uh, As Mm. a matter of fact, I planned to go like the Saturday of the last um, weekend, which was a 35-millimeter double bill of Psycho and Halloween 2. And then, you know, it was just kind of like, I just kind of burned myself out. I was just a little too tiring, and the weather was getting colder, and then the couch and a stack of movies just looked a little too good to pass up. So, uh, yeah, the drive-in season kind of ended a little bit more unceremoniously for me than um, in years past, but I know everybody there had an amazing time. So, yeah, now it's uh, now the hibernation season comes in where we get to just munch on more movies uh, in our home dwellings and hopefully more uh, in New York City, which is uh, a place where I think both uh, me and you are going to be, at least at the time of this recording, we'll have been in Brooklyn this past week for yes. um, special 35 millimeter screening of Alphabet City, uh, courtesy of our pals at Fun City Editions. Am I right? Yes, that's uh, Fun City Editions and the Deuce Film Series, the one, the only, the best film series in New York City at Nighthawk in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Um, yes, this will be done by the time we put this up. But um, yeah, the Deuce Film Series, uh, everything I ever did in my, I don't know, five years of hosting movies was pretty much a pale imitation of what I what I ripped off from the Deuce uh, a monthly 35 millimeter series that actually has been down, of course, due to COVID. Uh, Nighthawk has been up for a few months, but this is the first event for the Deuce. And I'm super excited to see all my friends, all the Deuce regulars. And Amos Poe is going to be there and Fun City will be in full effect. And yes, this will be this will be good times. We'll see more more movies in the theater you've been seeing movies and I, I i've seen movie i saw a movie in the theater last i saw a new release movie in the theater oh, last look night at you look at um, you <laughs> what i you will say? promise not to make a habit of it don't worry <laughs> um i went to see uh i went to see last night in soho actually ah um, interesting and, interesting uh, that you that you bring that one up but what, what, yeah, what i mean we, we yeah. talked about this off air but yeah um if we just you know just to rub it in your face just a little bit if Please everybody do. if everybody recalls um dino has a very contentious relationship with edgar wright's last film baby driver which i think is plenty of fun this i young think man, isn't a this film. young man <laughs> i think it's not a movie i think it's uh i think it's a, a a love letter to guy ritchie's soundtracks i think it's a i think it's a terribly cast music vi- oh sorry i'm not going negative oh. go ahead go ahead <laughs> so yeah so just to remind you of all of that uh, so Dino just saw last night in Soho. I did see that last Thursday um, at the preview screening. Uh, so as of right now, this is November. Uh, last night in Soho is my favorite film of 2021. Bold statement, perhaps, because there's still a lot of good stuff coming between November and December for sure. Yeah. 
Is there? Because I sat there for a West Side Story remake trailer and then a Scream trailer. And 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 I mean, I think this might have been a way for them to sell more alcohol. Like the like just the, the bunch of trailers was like getting worse and worse. And anyway, sorry. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, like it, 2020 has not been a great cinematic year. I will give you that. But yeah, I, I feel like it's more common than not that they um, save a lot of this is 2021. Well, 2021. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm still in the vacuum of, of the media, the you know, the mediocre year that was 2020. And I guess that kind of carried into a lot of this year. <laughs> Very much so. There really. I don't know. I look. I, I don't know what year it is either. I, I pretty. I, I mean, I guessed my birthday age, and I was off by a year. I mean, I, oh. you certainly can. You certainly can be excused for mixing up years during the during the pandemic time, as it were, <laughs> if we're even still using such verbiage. But uh, yes, I, I I saw that. I, yeah, I saw it last night. Uh, rather like. What did you think? Um, oh, okay. I rather he, like he rather liked it, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> though I realized it has, you know, I, I to tell you the truth, I don't know if the version of uh, "I Got My Mind Set on You" was if that actually was a '60s song. But now I'm a little mad at the movie because uh, I can't stand that song. That was a song that was it, it, uh, unavoidable in its '80s incarnation, the McCartney yeah. version in the '80s, and it's uh, kind of horrific but anyway no i i like i like the movie a lot i i thought you know it's I, I think it's still very edgar wright i think in some ways um my friend tuna referred to it as earnest he said he's an earnest guy i thought it was an interesting way of putting it um but uh that 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 Wright was in the way that he makes movies um yeah i i think that uh it, it's definitely made for a certain amount of acceptance uh, for, for a certain amount of mainstream um you know accessibility but it it uh I, I you know it's it's kind of like um it's kind of like hitchcock going back to england i like right doing a movie back in england uh mm-hmm. again I, I i think that works quite well uh i like i liked rita tushingham or tushingham however it's pronounced just mm-hmm. saw her recently in um the leather boys yeah. uh, a really interesting movie from the 60s that's on agfa and uh, no, I rather liked it. I thought the movie, you know, it, it, it worked for me. It, it swept me up in it. And, and uh, there were a couple, there was at least a, a, a solid twist. Uh, and uh, fucking hell, Terrence Stamp is always great to see, right? Isn't so. he great? Wasn't he great? Yeah, r- really good stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that you took to it because um, I, I really liked that everybody in that film I really liked. I think that he, the production and costume design in it were really stellar and I mean, you're a music guy, so I was curious about your thoughts on that. But I really liked the needle drops in this one. I really think that he really, he really, mm. you know, kind of yeah. dug into that period. That's that's yeah. something I, I that... think he did. I think I think that's fair. I just, I just, uh, you know, I, I I still have to chew it over because I I have certainly held court uh, to to the poor people who had to listen uh, before on my feelings <laughs> about nostalgia being like a very very dangerous drug. And, and the, the movie's really uh, focusing on on. On on kind of that, on, you know, ruminating on the idea of nostalgia and mm-hmm. gla- and valorizing a certain time, um, and I, you know, maybe it's a movie I need to see again, um, yeah. but we'll probably wait and not see it in the theater. But um, yeah, I was glad to see it, and uh, I, you know, I can say that I think Shaun of the Dead and Last Night in Soho are his good movies. Okay. So I think I think the the Cornetto trilogy is okay. It just gets like. 
less okay as you go along. I, 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 yeah, I, I still need to see Hot Fuzz and At World's End, actually. Those are the only two of his that I still have uh, been been sleeping on. But, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I did, I really did take to it. And, you know, just knowing that this film was coming out, um, it's sort of an interesting thing that we're that we're observing now um, going back, you know, crazy enough, uh, two years ago to 2019 when Tarantino did Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And now we see Edgar Wright's um, love letter to the swing in 60s London. We're going to see uh, P.T. Anderson uh, with his love letter to 70s California mm-hmm. and Licorice Pizza. Kenneth Branagh uh, this same month is going to be doing Belfast. So it's interesting that we're seeing, you know, a whole generation of filmmakers kind of um be obsessed or consumed in a lot of ways like to your saying with nostalgia a, a look to the past uh what do you think of that I, I think that it's really interesting and i i'm really excited to see all of these different filmmakers um you know takes on these because you can tell these are very personal projects to them so I, I i'm liking this wave that we're seeing in these filmmakers i don't know if you have an opinion on that um well i i look i i, I know somebody who seems to be who seems to be mainlining that damn licorice pizza uh, trailer over and over and over again. Um, (laughs) But uh, nevertheless, um, you know, I I think it was inevitable during COVID to at least think about like the past and, and, and and going back to quote unquote, a simpler time, of course, that never really existed. Mm -hmm. Uh, But um, I don't know, you know, I'm thinking back cycles, right? It always, things always happen like that. I was going back to like the, 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 um, the early 90s and thinking about the obsession with the 60s that it had and how movies like Dazed and Confused are talking more or, you know, they're really a 90s movies, a 90s take on on the 70s. And, mm-hmm. you know, that whole that whole obsessive cycle of, you know, JFK and the doors and, and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, you got to take it as it comes, because it's it's like um, who's nostalgia and in what way and trying to say trying to make what point. Um I am very fascinated by the idea of nostalgia. It kind of it kind of uh, informs a lot of what I ended up doing personally, uh, my interests, and what I do for a living. But I'm mm-hmm. also like the more the the older I get, the more I'm around it, the more I'm like suspicious of what it can do. It's very easy, and that's kind of the point of of the character, the lead character of Ellie. Mm-hmm. Uh, can't believe how long it took to get to the song Eloise um, <laughs> in um, the uh, Barry Ryan song that, of course, I knew by the version by The Damned. If you don't know the the, the song Eloise, uh, the 60s song redone by The Damned in the 80s, I would check it out. Uh, I was surprised how long it took to get that to, to get to that in the in uh, last night in Soho. Anyway, um, yeah, you know, it, it's 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 always it, it's it's often interesting, but never a, a slam dunk. You know, it's like, you know, yeah. you, you, you can only talk about the past so much. And of course, it's not always marketable. Mm-hmm. Um but I think it also probably, you know, in terms of people doing in terms of like the bigger name indie-ish kind of indie or art house directors at this point, I think they're still kind of especially since the, how much time has has stopped for for uh, for theaters and for movies in in the pandemic. I think they're all kind of still in the in the glow of once upon a time in Hollywood. I think there's still that opportunity to like let's 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 turn this over let's uh let's turn the stone over and, you know, and look what we can do with it so yeah yeah well i guess we're just going to be along for the ride but uh you know 
at here at uh, I Eat Movies, what would we be without uh, a little nostalgia? So there it is. Speaking of the 90s, we're going to I, I, I want to say that uh, to follow up uh, what we did last time um, mm-hmm. for, for the Billy Flops episode, uh, I wanted to once again, like we did with Jade, focus on a movie that came out while Mike was actually alive, oh. which is exciting, <laughs> which is exciting. That's right? nice, um, nice little low blows. I like it. I like it. It won't, that's not a low blow. It's, <laughs> you, you had no control over that. It's just uh, you're right. I was just, I was just, I was there. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it is what it is. But so listen, um, let's, uh, we're gonna dive into Mike's first time. Yeah. Uh, be gentle. We brought no. lube. Yeah, um, yeah. But, um, this, is, this is another curveball for us, as you mentioned. This is our but, second. Sorry. So hit. No, no. I was, just, uh, I was just gonna say, um, curveball in what way? Go ahead. Curveball in the fact that, uh, as you said uh, last time with Jay, that was only our second film that we did in the 90s. So this is a curveball in the fact that this is our first film um, as we delve into the uncharted territory of the 2000s. Now, if you guys remember from season one, this is a format that we did uh, twice where we did kind of tit for tat of uh, Dino's first time where I introduced him to the incredible Breathless remake from 83, and he did the same for me with Eddie Murphy's Harlem Nights. So we had such a blast um, with that format that we're going to be bringing it back this season, and uh, as evident as uh, with Dino's introduction, this is going to be my first time with a film that uh, he has a you know qu- quite a personal connection to, I would think. Um, he's got yeah, some love, got so. some love for this one. So, yeah, without further ado, I suppose this would be Mike's first time with 2002's Igby Goes Down. We do take a lot of pride in seeing our boys succeed. Uh, But, of course, we're here to discuss Igby. Igby Slocum was given everything a boy could want. What exactly do you think you're doing here, Slocum? It's Carlton Musful. But what he wants now is out. I'm on the lam. You doing school or something? No. How old are you, Igby? I'm 18. I'm very close to being 18. You want to stay here? I'm Oliver, and this is my little brother, Igby. What kind of a name is Igby? Igby. Igby. Kind of a name that someone named Sookie is in no position to question. That's my uh, godson, Igby. How you doing? Good. How did you end up at military school? Mimi. You call your mother Mimi? Penis one is a bit cumbersome. My son hates me. That's always been one of his favorite topics of conversation. What are you planning to do with your life, Igby? Go on my razor's edge experience. Discover the meaning of life. Whatever. Your little vacation's about to come to a rather abrupt and severe end. I believe that certain people in life are meant to fall by the wayside. To serve as warnings for the rest of us, signposts along the way. Your brother is looking for you. We gotta go now. I gotta get out of here. I'm not going with you, Igby. You think you're what he wants? He won't let you. Shut up, Sucky! You're just a glutton for punishment, aren't you, Iggs? United Artists and Atlantic Streamline invites you to a world of wealth and privilege. Chin chin. Chin chin. Where insanity is relative. (laughs) You know, I'm very tense about all of Igby's trouble. Mimi, get off the mate. 
Higby goes down. Undoubtedly, somebody, uh, if not multiple people, are going to be like, oh, God, an indie movie from the <laughs> 2000s. Tell me something. Where were you at? Um, where were you at in terms of or are you at, I should say, you know, g- given hindsight and, and the the power of that um, with, um, say, like the, you know, the mid 90s, the mid to late 90s indie film explosion um that kind of was happening that was underway like in terms of late 90s which lead up to this point in time i think mm-hmm. uh what are your feelings about like those movies um i mean like i i guess as a kind of a film fan and cinephile i mean it, it was an exciting time i guess it's fair to say that that probably was the last like um hurrah of you know a, a, an independent movement in um in cinema. I think that we're getting back to that though, because there's so many interesting, um, you know, up and coming directors who are working, you know, off the top of my head, you know, Alex Ross Perry, Sean Baker, there's a lot of creative talent out there of people in and around our ages. So I love that. And I think that we're getting back to that, but yes, yeah, specifically the mid, um, nineties to the two thousands, uh, early two thousands period. I think that was, it was just a really ripe, exciting time. You know, obviously at that time I was watching, um, Kevin Smith, obviously, Quentin mm-hmm. Tarantino. I didn't really come to Link later until a little bit later on, like with things like Slacker. I was a little late to that one. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I love this period of cinema because there was just there was just an excitement in the air and you could feel there was a lot of originality bursting. There were people really trying to shatter the system in ways, you know, you know, taking these really small budgets, original concepts and putting them um, you know, kind of through the ringer and seeing what they would come out with. And more times than not, we got some really interesting stuff. So, yeah, I mean, at this point, I, I really had my finger on the pulse of a lot of stuff that was coming mm. out. Obviously, with the exception of Igby Goes Down, this one I missed. Um, so I'm you would not like, be the only you would not be the only one to be sure. But. No. Yeah, apparently not. I mean, it's interesting with this film. I mean, I'm sure you can speak more to this, but, you know, in the in the research, it's just interesting to see. And again, it kind of shows a time and a place to where a really teeny tiny independent film such as this was made with complete studio backing i mean this is a united artists um production uh you know this is this is a subdivision really of 20th century fox uh so i thought i thought it was um i i heard i saw it uh, printed as mgm's united artist unit that's right yeah mg yeah united artists was a subdivision of mgm thank you um but you know it's crazy to me to think that that it's not even like um you know, these indies that get made today, they're kind of made on their own and then they're swooped up by, you know, at the film festivals, they're swooped up by maybe a, a, you know, a bigger studio that's then put out under their, um, you know, their art art house subdivision. This was a film that was, you know, from the ground up conceived and made from um, within, you know, a major studio. And it's crazy to think that. I mean, mean, you look at this now, you know, trying to ignore the obviously impressive cast that uh, this film amassed. But it's it's crazy to think that, like, does that still exist nowadays? It really doesn't. That's very much a dying thing where you see something this small and independent kind of come up through the ranks of a major studio because their priorities are all over the place. Their priorities are trying to build these empires, you know, in the kind of in the – the shadow of something like Marvel or Disney. So, yeah, I, I right. think that this is very much like 
um, the dying days of that. So I think that that film, this film in particular, is interesting for that alone. I think we had a. I I, told, I agree with you, and and um, we'll get into some of the other things that were playing at that time later. But I uh, I have this maybe idealized vision, and I'm sure somebody will you know eventually just how like the 2000s up to a certain point really still had a lot of this going on i was going to like a landmark theater i was going to theaters in boston during that period of time and seeing certain indie things and you know dodging certain other ones you know by the time juno came out i wanted no part of that mm-hmm. um and and this is the same period of time like i was it was still very much pick and choose like i i i, ha- I can't deny that part of the reason okay well here it comes. Uh, part of the reason, part of the reason I don't like Wes Anderson is uh, not simply because I don't like his brand. I don't like the the way that 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 he manu- he puts together movies, and how there's a certain like patterned quirkiness that is his thing. But also because like I knew people, I knew people who I knew someone who was like obsessed enough at the height of at the height of Wes Anderson, like you know that that she was like trying to get a job with him and harassing him or fi- harassing his his company and whatnot like i knew people who were that, who were that attached to like yeah. some of the it, it, like seeing how seeing how hot it was at that time did not exactly endear me to it but the movies you know whatever um well i'm happy to hear you say that not to cut yeah. you off or you sure know, once not for once in a blue moon mike does cut off dino but yeah i He's, am happy to well, hear you say that because uh you know Wes Anderson has absolutely created a brand for himself and people love his material. But if I'm being completely honest, I've never really taken to it myself either. I will say, though, that there is one film of his that I, you know, um, absolutely love. And that's fantastic. Mr. Fox, the stop motion Uh adaptation of the Roald Dahl um, book, which Roald Dahl is my favorite author. I loved that book growing up and it was kind of cool to see a guy that didn't come from an animation background deliver something as unique and quirky as that was. So I, I really do appreciate that. Everything else, there's still stuff that I haven't seen, admittedly, but from what I have seen and the stuff that people seem to really rave about, I just haven't taken to. So you're certainly not alone in that. I was, you know, I was, what, in my 20s. So, um... You were you know, the market, really. You really were the market. I was, yeah, I was, I was, and I was, you know, look, uh, I, I've never been, I've never been a let's go see all the new releases. I'm excited by all the, all the new releases type of thing. It's always been a pick and choose thing for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's always been, I mean, if it, 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 it's not because I'm discriminating or I know so much, I don't. Uh, I do this, uh, we do this. Well, I, I can't speak for you, but I do this because I still want to learn about movies and still want to understand understand this. Um, but, I, you know, it's not out of condescension uh, or, or, or like, you know, snootery, even though I get accused of that, whether I, I try to or not. Um, no, it's just, it, it, honestly, it probably comes down to the fact that I'm, I get easily overwhelmed with too much. And, and I don't want to have to mm-hmm. see ever all the movies. I'm not, I'd much rather say that doesn't look like it's for me. Um, and in the case of a lot of things, I'd rather like let time pass because if, um, if I can escape the bubble of hype and this is goes for music too, if I, if I can escape the bubble of hype, that's around something new and get to it like after that, when, you know, then I think it's really kind of a good time to go to it. Um, anyway, but in terms of like the nineties, like the nineties indie stuff, there were certain things that like, like I, I saw, I saw, you know, I saw my, uh, the earlier, earlier Wes Anderson movies. Um, and def- pe- people definitely gasp when I say I don't 
like his stuff. But uh, I, I didn't mind. I didn't mind some of the earlier ones. They were fine for what they were. But it, it, it was hitting that pattern. And really, what what I saw also in movies like I remember when uh, Napoleon Dynamite came out and it was yeah. huge. Mm-hmm. And to me, these were movies that were getting tagged and labeled for reasonable, to be fair, reasonable. Um, uh, re- you know, financial reasons, what they had behind them in terms of marketing and money and and budget, they were being marketed as indie, and some of it just read to me as like very fake indie. Uh, mm-hmm. it, like there were certain movies, and it's, it's not to say I can make a concrete dividing line uh, about all these movies that kind of came out post uh, the the flare up of Tarantino in the '90s and say these are and these aren't. But some of them were just like very kind of like deliberately slightly off-center movies that were I know really exactly just what you're saying very yes. very very conventional and very conservative very mm. conservative stories that were painted in a certain way that had a certain level of very safe quirkiness just to come around to what basically felt like a spielberg movie just with no, no offense to your guy mm-hmm. uh that's fine but like <laughs> you know just uh, to, to, they were just a different flavor a different trend that were kind of doing exactly what you'd expect any mainstream very safe very broad appeal lowest common denominator movie was going to do except they had a lot of quirky characters in it and some of those really rubbed me the wrong way granted i was in my 20s somehow i know it's hard to believe i was a bigger asshole back then i like to think Um, so (laughs) i was extra judgmental of those things but there was you know at the same time i was going out to see movies like ghost dog first run and fucking mm-hmm. loving it there were people doing things that were still fascinating and interesting mm-hmm. um, for sure yeah 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 but uh my history with this movie look i asked you if you'd ever seen this movie i don't remember how i found this movie i don't know if i no you know what i see it's easy to be like i saw it on a streaming service but it, of course not <laughs> i did uh because it, did, it wasn't like that i have a tape of this film I don't think I ever had a Blu-ray of it, and I was looking at the tape, and just by virtue, it's like a it's it's a New York it's a the, 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 it's a former rental copy with a New York area code on it. I have no idea where I found this movie. I don't I don't remember whatsoever. Interesting, um, but it hit me in such a way where it, like okay, look, I pick up a movie from the early two thousands at the late nineties, and Amanda Peet is in it. So it's like, okay, I, I think I already know, you know, the queen of the indies as she is, was, I don't know anymore. Um, but uh, You ever get it, those feelings too, like with movies of this era, like if you pick up a movie from this era and Amanda Peet or Parker Posey are in it, oh, yeah. there's yeah, just well, something, yeah, yeah yes. like those yes. two actresses, there's something about this moment in time and them specifically in films that I'm yeah. like, okay, I think I know what I'm getting myself into. But And, es- and especially on the videotape, if you had any doubt, the 200, 200- Hundred indie and art film and documentary trailers that you're going to see before the movie starts is definitely going to hammer that point home. Yeah, <laughs> uh, invariably that was part of the thing. I don't remember when I saw this movie, but yes, it, it's the 2002 film, and um, it's a Kieran Culkin movie, uh, one of the many Culkins, um, and, and and one who who I, I suppose I, I suppose he's he's still around to some degree. Yeah, well he's. He's actually doing succession, quite, right? Yeah, he's doing succession yeah, now. So he's it. doing like, you know, probably better than ever before. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he he started off in the business right along his brother Macaulay, because if, you know, people of my generation would know, he actually plays Macaulay Culkin's yes. cousin in Home Alone. He's Fuller, who wets the bed a lot. So he started and, his career right alongside Mac. 
and his what his younger brother let's see and rory, rory. culkin actually plays young him in this movie as well yeah uh, and rory so, culkin to going back to one of your earlier insults he was in screen no. four actually excellent excellent <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I i i appreciate somebody keeping track of my insults that's good of you. <laughs> um but um but yeah, so I, I, you know, I, I picked, I must have picked this tape up at some point, and so at some point, in some way, and just checked it out, and I was really impressed with it in terms of a lot of things. I guess in terms of like the prevailing, you know, someone like Wes Anderson, there's a certain quality to this movie and a darkness to Igby Goes Down that I really connected to, and and, and it seems like a lot of the press did also. But anyway, we should let's just let's just. You want you want to get into the movie, yeah, or you want to? How about we get into some meat and potatoes? Why don't you, sure. Mister um, Veteran of Igby Goes Down, explain oh, to all of us what Igby Goes Down is all about? It's nothing like being a veteran of something that's not even twenty years old. Um, <laughs> yeah, so Igby Goes Down is about is about a uh, errant seventeen year old um, named Igby Slocum, that is the Kieran Culkin character who's just been thrown out of yet another school. The movie opens literally with him and his brother, played his old brother Oliver, played by Ryan Philippe, um, working on a plan to kill their mother. Uh, very opulent surroundings. These are affluent people. This is a story about the rich and shallow. And Igby is really cut into the pattern of a uh, of um, a Holden Caulfield type of character. He's been th- he's affluent, disaffected, very sarcastic. Um, has a good base of education, but just doesn't know where where to go, and is basically failing out of one private school, reform school, military school after another. Um, his mother is played by uh, Susan Sarandon. Oh, but you you know this is random, but um, I want to say it might have been on an old Mark Marin podcast, but uh, I think Jeff Goldblum, who's also in this movie, yeah, and maybe. Maybe one of my it actually definitely one of my favorite performances by Jeff Goldblum ever is in this movie. Um, I think it's it, on Mark Maron. He once said uh, Sarandon and um, about Susan. No, no. And, and he made the point that he's heard it both ways, which is really? funny because when you think about Chris Sarandon or Sarandon and yeah. then Susan. So I thought that was interesting, but oh, I wow, guess most, most people. Most, most, well, when you think about it, you know, I, I don't know where the name comes from, to be honest. Anyhow. Um, but, uh, Susan Sarandon, um, at, uh, you know, I saw one piece of press that referred to this as, as a pretty high point in her career. She just the same, around the same time she had the banger sisters, which had just come out. Mm-hmm. Um, it plays, uh, plays their mother who's something of a, you know, affluent monster. Um, yeah. and, uh, their father is played, their father, Jason Slocum is played by a, a terrific Bill Pullman. Incredibly um, understated in this film, too. Incredibly understated, but does so much yeah. with his scenes. And we learn that there's been um, there's been some some mental health issues, and he's been institutionalized. Uh, and there's some really interesting um, there's some interesting uh, foreshadowing there in that he talks about uh, the weight of pressure that he feels, um, presumably from you know from the being being affluent being society people and so forth um and, and the character of bill pullman is largely served not exclusively but largely served in flashbacks by igby so basically igby manages to find a way 
um, between you know going between one military school to another to kind of escape from the cycle and then kind of hole up in New York City. And the characters, be they his godfather, played by Jeff Goldblum, D.H., um, his godfather's um, uh, his godfather's wife, who lives out in the Hamptons, his godfather's um, mistress, who is the Amanda P. character, Rachel, mm-hmm. uh, a random caterer who he ran he runs into out in the Hamptons. Uh, which is a terrific Claire Danes playing a character named Sookie Saperstein. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, and then um, let me see. It's a, what, what's his name? It's a Jared Harris. Harris. Yeah, plays Russell, which is a fellow Bohemian artist friend of Rachel's. Um, and it just kind of bounces around where he's, you know, within this terrific sense of affluence and ennui and the fact that he's kind of a screw up and he wants to just get high and kind of, you know, avoid reality and kind of bask in his own in his own internal um, issues, like a lot of the, the, the craziness that he comes from, a lot of the, the pain that he comes from, but but can't really can't really. Um, uh, verbalize or or face up to outside of like sarcasm and constantly yeah. like biting wit and so forth. Uh, Igby is just kind of going through this this phase in New York City, and 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 it serves as a platform for a bunch of terrific performance pieces, really based on dialogue. Um, in a New York City that I, I you know the, the 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 textbook line is it's a New York City that no longer exists. One of the things that really works for me with this movie is that. I don't come from that background, but I but these people are so realistic to me. These people mm-hmm. speak to a character of New York of Manhattan. I'm not even gonna say New York City, a character of Manhattan yeah. that is very weird and shiny and appealing and cold all at the same time. And mm-hmm. what I think was really interesting about the director, who, who I'll get into, Burr Steers, that's really his name. Uh, in the era, in the era of time, in the era of time that you know someone could be named, someone involved in movies could be named Diablo Cody. Why not have a burst ear? Sure, why not? He captures a certain something in this, and this is actually his. Uh, was his? I, I think one of the reviews I read said he might have abandoned a novel to turn it into a screenplay. Correct. Which I thought Correct. was interesting. Um, and so, you, yes, you get these set pieces and you see this this interesting like this interesting series of events that happens to Igby as he kind of bounces around between like between like couch surfing and what have you and doing different things in this kind of, you know, in this kind of neutral space that he's kind of created for himself. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that that's a excellent uh summarization of this this little indie that could um yeah just kind of going back to the fact that this was a film that was studio backed and burst years as you mentioned this film was designed i think uh from the offset as a novel which uh became a film i don't want to be too harsh but i think it would have been served better as a novel because the comparisons are pretty obvious with the whole catcher in the rye thing karen culkin's character igby 
you can you know count the comparisons day you know day in and day out uh, to Holden Caulfield. It's pretty much right there. I mean, I you know I've I've heard you know I've read um, reviews of this film that compare it that The Catcher in the Rye may never get a feature film adaptation, but we have Igby goes down. Basically, sure. you know, making the point that th- this is as close as you'll get to that source material um, getting a film. So that's valid. Um, okay, wait, stop, stop, hold up, stop it. I really like this movie. What did you think? Well, I did not. <laughs> I did not like it as much as you did. I will give. I will say that much. Um, okay. But I. But you know, it, it, that's not. That's that's too easy to just say. I didn't like it. There's reasons for that. But I don't want to. I don't want to cut just into like what I think. I didn't take to. And let's be clear. There's Listen, honey, out- it's your first time, not mine. Yeah, that's true. Okay. That's true. There's nothing outrightly bad about this movie. There's just, you know, different strokes for different folks, right? Um, in this film, I do want to praise the one thing that I think that you um, kind of hit upon. And it's what it's the New York, the Manhattan, more specifically, that Burr Steers makes in this film. What he captures in this film it kind of captures a Manhattan that's in this time warp. I can't tell if this is 1988 or 2002 for almost the entirety of its film, with the exception of one brief scene where you see in the background, George W. Bush's picture is in the background. And then one moment where uh, in many ways, unforgivably, we hear Coldplay song on the soundtrack, which pretty much dates it to that fucking year, more or less. Oh, wow. Um, Okay. Yeah, that's the only thing that was like, like <laughs> not not a <laughs> okay. Coldplay fan, but that really just like oh, that drives that drives 2002 really hard for me. But yeah, he really captures um, a moment in time. And correct me if I'm wrong. In the research, it said that this was one of the last films to capture the Twin Towers before 9/11. We see a lot of New York City skyline, but I don't know if my eyes were deceiving me. I can't remember seeing the Twin Towers being captured in this film. I think I remember. I think I remember a quick shot of them. Yeah. Okay, so they were there at least. Maybe I wasn't sure if that that um, detail was just referencing that they were shooting at the time, but maybe didn't put it in the film. But okay, as, as long as they they were there, so that's interesting. It definitely is a time capsule of that. But yeah, Igby goes down really. You know, does a really good job of capturing this old money, high society flock of people that have been here for God knows how long, and they're going to continue to be here for many years after me and you are both in the ground rotting away. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the types in this film, I'm right there alongside with you that we know these types. I've known these types, and he definitely captures them um, in all their occasionally wretched glory. Um, I, yeah. So the, the whole capturing of Manhattan, I thought was very spot on. And I liked that there wasn't really anything that dated it to any specific time period. There, there's a very timeless feel to that, which is not an easy thing to pull off necessarily. So I applaud Igby goes down for that. My, but by the way, if I can interject quickly, sure. um, I, there's a certain, I have a very weird, Okay, I have a very weird uh, relationship with New York City. We did kind of talk about this a little bit, I think, on on, on Rotten Apple. Rotten Apple, yeah. 87, you know, I believe in a love-hate relationship with it. But I think one of the – I don't know if I mentioned this, and if I did, slap me through the internet. But um, 
one of the things that is like a big issue for me, uh, for better or for worse, I think I have a little bit of baggage, a little bit of resentment here. But one of the things I think he manages to capture that's not always so easy um, and maybe a movie like After Hours. And this movie isn't really like After Hours, but still it's about the, the there's a certain something about the chaos of New York City. One of the things that, that kind of knocks me out and kind of vexes me at the same time about Manhattan and this speaks to the, what you're talking about in terms of this timelessness. There's a certain level of hustle, a certain yeah. level of I'm going to do whatever I have to do. It's going to be sketchy. It's going to be weird. It's not going to make any sense, but it makes sense here. And people can kind of survive on that weird, crazy sense of hustle that anywhere else in the country, maybe anywhere else in the world. I'm probably not yeah. anywhere else in the world, you know, but nevertheless, w- just doesn't make sense. Like c- is not possible. There's mm-hmm. a way to survive and it's gotten a lot harder, I'd imagine, in the New York City of the current day. But there's a certain something about that that always kind of like gets – like kind of gets in my craw. Like because it's like who do you think you are? But there is there is a certain something about New York City that I think he manages to capture in that you can kind of know a couple of the right people. And you can kind of get in there as Igby does with a guy who sells drugs. And maybe he'll hook you up with a little something and you can get by with this and somehow – People can do these kind of hookups and I know a guy and so forth mm-hmm. and and somehow 20, 30 years passes. It doesn't it's not what this movie's about per se, but that quality of New York City is not always so easy to capture. I think they managed to get it here. And yeah. and, and I think that that's one of the things about this movie that sticks with me. Carry on, sorry. Yeah. No, I mean that, that's a that's a great point. And that, that it it plays into that what you're saying, like the hustle. I mean, there's there's very um there's very few occasions in this film where people aren't on the move. There's, you know, it's all about that hustle rhythm, that, that high speed, um, kind of pace that you're, that you're mentioning. So yeah, that that's definitely inherent in the fabric of this film. Uh, another thing that I want to talk about is that for such a small, intimate film, I think that it's really impressive. Um, the cast that this person, uh, that Burr Steers has, uh, amassed. I think it's super impressive for such a, you know, a small independent film that apparently only cost about roughly nine million dollars. I mean, I know you talked about it, but Kieran Culkin is really great in the role. I think, you know, he really captures this sarcastic sort of lonely kid, you know, trying to find his way in the world um, in a society and kind of in an upbringing that he really wants no part of. He doesn't really take to this world that his family has been a part of um again claire danes you mentioned she's really wonderful as the girl that he mm. sort of for um jeff goldblum who uh is re- he here's the thing with jeff goldblum in this role i know okay. that you praise him in this role and it's it's interesting because we rarely see goldblum play such an asshole such a dislikable not at first yeah. uh to be to be uh, mindful of not at first he's actually kind of a, a delightful character at first but then he really shows his true colors at one point in this film and i was like wow i mean i think it's all you know part of the power of the performance but i think i hate jeff goldblum's character and it's such a weird feeling i think it's i think it's it's such a part of new york city it's um i think it's uh just there's that type of person where where they're um they're affluent and they do very well but they have that total detachment and and they they can afford to do that and just the way that he talks above people mm-hmm. and um 
and you don't really uh you don't really get anything uh from him like emotionally he's just like kind of going through things and i think it's fascinating that that the uh the ryan philippe character who i really don't know from anything else but like i believe he is that character i believe jeff Goldblum yeah. in real life probably is that maybe it's nicer to think of him as as being a better person than that and maybe he is and i've heard some stories but whatever um but uh I, I totally, I totally believe these characters. Even, even like Susan Sarandon, who is like amazingly funny but awful and condescending, she's awful. and and she's just these these. I like New York City, but I also accept that people like this uh, are New York City, even though she's Georgetown. You know, she's DC, and, there, yeah. and and there's a decent amount of there's a bit of moving around in this movie. I think most of the serious action happens in New York City, happens yeah. in Manhattan. Yeah, definitely. Um, you have to also note, uh, you know, the, the quick appearances of um, Eric Bogosian mm-hmm. and C- Cynthia Nixon. Uh, mm-hmm. Cynthia Nixon plays Miss. I think her name is listed as Miss. Anyway, he says her name, and it doesn't come out as Piggy, but it's spelled P I G G E E. And Eric Bogosian, who's totally like, a, "Hey, look, it's that guy." Uh, and until he has like a great like he's a, he's a, he's a, he's buying drugs uh, or he's probably buying weed or something. He's until he got this like, hey, great. You guys know each other. And his character's <laughs> name is Mr. Nice Guy, which I think yeah, is pretty, yeah. pretty amazing. Um, <laughs> it's great to see some of those people show up in, in, in something like this because, you know, it's kind of like calling it a favor or uh, or something to that effect. Or they just want to be part of this of this of this uh, show. So, yeah. No, definitely. And and I will agree with you there. Ryan Philippe, who um, is basically playing a, a, a similar variation of um, a character from Cruel Intentions, I totally believe um, his role in this as just, you know, the the young Republican, as Igby uh, const- constantly um, refers him to him as. Well, he's studying um, neo-fascism. Yeah, neo-fascism. Exactly. He's majoring in neo-fascism. But yeah, he he is a, he's a first grade asshole uh, and really sells the part. The one I know we talked about this uh, previously, but th- I think the performance of this picture belongs um, to Bill Pullman. I think he's fantastic, incredibly mm-hmm. understated, very nuanced. Um, again, uh, most of his scenes are told uh, in flashback form as a guy that's just, you know, he basically has a nervous breakdown of the pressure living in this high society and stuff like that. So I have the most empathy for Bill Pullman, and I almost wish that we could have spent more time with that character, because as it is, I think that my my trouble with this film is that we're supposed to. I, th- I believe with any film, we're supposed to eventually empathize and sympathize and connect with these characters. And I struggle to do any of the three in this. That's my really? problem. I think I, I, I see what is what Burstiers is going for. He captures these people with a reality and a gravity that speaks true. But I don't really empathize with these people. I, I kind of loathe them as characters. I, I do universe have... like across the board like the, the, there's nobody here that, that that you see anything in I mean Igby gets there I Igby yeah. gets there for me but even you know I, I'm I try even as I'm watching this I'm I'm trying to subconsciously tell myself he's a kid he's young like think how you were at that age so that definitely helped because I can see a lot of people dismissing the character for just being mm. entitled spoiled 
And so I I really try to check myself at the door with that one. And I think that that definitely helped because by the end, I'm just like, he's just got to go. He's he knows what he has to do. He needs to remove himself from this situation. And maybe that, you know, uh, perhaps maybe plotting wise, the fact that that uh, spoilers that that comes as sort of the the finale of the film when he removes himself um, from this equation that has kind of been like the root of his despair for his entire life. Um, But yeah, as far as everybody else, I really don't have much sympathy for. I just, Mm. there's something about the, this type. I, I, maybe it's just the, where we live in the country where like, we've just known this certain archetype of people for so long and it's kind of been in my face that like it it make even in even in fictionalized form it makes it very hard for me to empathize and that, that's not that's not a that's not like a comment on class that i can just be like oh well their problems don't matter because they're high mm-hmm. society and they have money that's not about that it's really not because that's not the case like i i we can i can watch plenty of movies where people come from that and that you know i have all the sympathy and empathy in the world for bill pullman's character because okay we we don't see too much but you just see a guy who seemingly has everything he's got kids family money everything that you probably think but there's something it's like it's like the stress of life broke him down and no matter what you know area of the totem pole that you're on that can affect anybody so that you know, I just I felt that the way that he really beautifully portrayed that character, you know, I felt something for the Pullman character, which is, again, why I think his performance is the standout of the film. Iggy I think there's an it. argument to be made, by the way, that he is the emotional core of the movie and everybody is kind of played to get paid off of him because mm. in, sure. in their um, it's not I don't want to say necessarily affluence. It's just, it's just they're they're very disaffected. They're very jaded. Um, everybody There's a coldness is, like coming yes, from, but them, that's you know. what this movie. But that's what this movie is really focusing on. I'm a sucker for a character arc. I'm a sucker for somebody who goes through a um, who goes through a phase, goes through hardships, goes through a test of you know testing a person's metal, goes through issues that make them try to have to look at themselves a little bit. And I think the arc of Igby in this movie is really what makes it be. And I think it's very telling that he goes back to this like emotional soul of the movie, his father, uh, Mm -hmm. in that his mother has dominated everything, has tried to decide every single thing for him, has constantly pushed him, whether he wanted to be, whether it was good or not talked above him, even to the point where telling him who his father was, it's always constantly like, so there just kind of talk down to, uh, one of the reviews says she ref- she constantly refers to her sons as straight men, uh, you know, just yeah. kind of being like the butt of the joke. Um, I like what I like what you you know what you put together about the idea of Pullman because I think he's kind of in some way even he's not in the most of the movie he's kind of the anchor there and these Absolutely. people have lives with so many things that they could want but there's still this terrific like malaise on we that that they, that they're dealing with that's that's like. Is this it? That's what this movie kind of is. And and I think as a 17-year-old, looking at all the adult types around him, um, I can kind of, you know, not having had this life, but still, I can kind of understand a little bit of where Igby is coming from and why he has, uh, in, in place of 
in place of like more fully formed emotions, why he has such rage and condescension towards everybody else. It's the only thing that he's kind of been taught. Yeah. You know, no, that, that, that totally makes sense. It's just like, you know, I guess it's just something where I don't, you know, like it, it doesn't relate like those characters and their lives don't necessarily relate to me. And you're always searching for that in any film that you're right. watching to, even if it's even if it's, you know, a film about somebody in a foreign land or, you know, in a spaceship, you're always trying to find some sort of connective tissue that's going to relate to your personal life, whether consciously or subconsciously. But with this, there's just like the way Igby is raised and, you, you know, like he, he, he's, he's smart beyond his years, you know, he's, and he's, he's obviously been a kid that's been forced to grow up way, way before, which, you know, mm -hmm. accounts for his sarcasm, you know, you know, his, his sarcastic wit, if you will, you know, his, his, his kind of forward disrespect to adults and, and whatnot. So it's just interesting where like you have a kid and I can, I, you know, I can very clearly remember how I was at 16 or 17. And I was like, I, I was nothing like that. You know, I was like, right. I was a knucklehead. So like to see him, I'm like, I don't even see myself in this character or like anybody that I ever knew at that age. So I think that probably, you know, could have, that could have halted me from kind of getting in deeper emotionally to Igby. Mm -hmm. But, but again, I think, you know, you hit it like it, it, the anchor being Pullman. I think that's what draws me. And so I was right. almost yearning more for that where I'm like, I kind of wish that this would become more of like a father son movie, a coming of age father son movie. It's not that movie, but that's not to say that all these things that I'm citing as the things that took away from the film for me it has its place. This film has merit for all of the reasons that I am, you know, I guess, you know, tearing it down about, but all the things that you're praising it for it, they all have merit here. So, you know, it just, it just didn't gel as much with me, but I see your point totally. I mean, I totally right. see your point where what these characters are doing in the malaise and whatnot. So yeah, it's, I think the dark comedy of it, uh, I think the dark comedy of it really is, is a lot, is for me a big part of why I connect to it. I did have a certain amount of rage as a kid. I was certainly pretty pissed off about a decent amount of things and very sarcastic. You know, mm. when I say like movies like um, like Fletch helped form my character uh, as a kid, it's because <laughs> it's because he's walking around making wisecracks to everybody and it's going over their heads. That to me was like a thing that totally worked. But this is as a dialogue driven, very sarcastic, but I think really funny movie. Um, yeah, let's. Uh, do you want to let's, let's walk through the movie a little bit? Yeah, like, let's uh, doing a bit of that. We open up with uh, we open up with with this scene that you know gives you the impression immediately gives us the impression immediately that this movie is going to be told largely in flashback as Oliver and Igby are um, waiting for their mother to die. Their mother's mm -hmm. dead and uh, in bed, and and uh, it's it's a scene of matricide, and then of course the flashback begins where we under where we learn how all of this has happened, um, and we do get a bit of Pullman right after the you know I I I kind of want to look at this again now I think about it and think about how how often like how often scenes of Mimi Sarandon are are put next to or or you know crossed with the scenes of Pullman, yeah. Um, because I, I think there might be much more deliberate 
you know, things about this. So basically the, their mother in this matricide beginning, their mother is, is not dying and they're about to put a plastic bag over their head, her head. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know at this point that she's been poisoned deliberately in a point of, um, in, in, in a, in deliberate, um, you know, in deliberate suicide, uh, assisted suicide as it were, um, by, uh, what poisoned pudding, I think it is. Yeah. Um, so like, so she's still breathing and there's this moment, this comic moment where these two guys are like, she really, we have to, she's still alive. Yeah. She seems to stop breathing. And then, and then Oliver goes, it's all the fucking tennis. Cause she obviously played so much tennis in her life and she's, she's still that athletic despite, we later learned that she is actually um, actually uh, dying of cancer. So um, we get these scenes of Pullman uh, where Sarandon's character Mimi is constantly baiting him. Uh, are you you know have you watched this week, dear, and so forth? Yeah. We see we see illustrations with the younger version of Oliver and Igby. We still see a lot of scenes, uh, including one where 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 Pullman Jason Pullman's character Jason comes to the table naked. Um, <laughs> that was a great scene. It's just pretty, yeah. Like like there's, uh, yeah. Okay, so so basically, and we start to see some. Um, some of the opposite arc of Igby, I think we see a little bit of his sensitivity because uh, we go back to some of his, uh, you know, one of his childhood birthdays. Uh, we see him as a slightly more tender, not nearly as sarcastic. This is, you know, the other device um, in this arc. I think uh, we see a little bit of him as a child and he's not nearly the sarcastic prick that he becomes the 17 year old that, you know, occupies most of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see him ending up in military school. Um, and, uh, in that scene too, you know, his roommate in this, when he's sent to military school, turtle, um, yeah, turtle, uh, it's, it's kind of a blink and you'll miss role, but that's actually Danny Tamborelli, who was the Ah. co-star of the adventures of Pete and Pete on Nickelodeon, which is a very indie darling type film. So when I saw him pop up, I'm like, oh wow. Like Burr Steers really like knew how to like cast a wide indie net with this. So it's a small role, but one that I definitely took notice of. Yeah. They're getting high in military school until we get, and I think this is also kind of an interesting device interesting device uh that uh we get the scene pretty early on of the explanation of the title when um when he's basically being being hazed uh tied up in a sack and beaten with the ends of broomsticks and one of the characters uh and one of you know there is this there is some brutality in this movie that's that's the thing it's there's emotional brutality there's physical brutality in places but most of the movie is people talking to each other and they're talking very very at each other in a very smart way and i understand that some people would probably react badly to that because uh of how smug the dialogue is for me it it it, it makes the movie um i like that there's one point where, where where they say you know you know where you're going next mister says uh mimi to him and he goes chote uh <laughs> which is you know the private school in connecticut um we have that scene of the uh, of the beatdown we're introduced to jeff goldblum who is just this slimy, unbelievably slimy, rich developer who does that thing with his two fingers where you fold money in with your two fingers and, yeah. and, and the circular, the circular proffering of money. And you can tell that mm-hmm. the, the, he, he's a, obviously Goldblum's tall, but he's beautifully dressed all the time. He's very smooth and he's just totally like venal and, and detached because he has money and that's all he needs. Right. Uh, l- l- later on, um, what is it? L- later on, uh, uh, Oliver, 
um, who is clearly meant to be mostly like him, says, you know, he's amazing. His mind only functions to make money. And he, if he wants to, he, he says he's a parody, mm-hmm. but uh, if he wants to make me in his image and I can be rich, that's fine with me. Um, and still, Ryan Philippe has some, has some pretty funny lines in certain places, like delivered totally cold, but that's yeah. who he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that scene with him and Sookie Saperstein where she says, uh, uh, you were numb. And he says, uh, I am numb. Like, that's yeah. his thing. He's, right. he's numb. He doesn't need to have emotions. And we play, you know, in, in, in standard, like, contrasting uh, sibling form. That's exactly – he plays that to, to show that there's a, a wider range of curiosity, of emotion, of um, – uh, of life that uh, that Igby's looking for, I think, mm-hmm. um, versus what um, versus what Oliver what what Oliver wants uh, out of this life uh, yeah. as a young Republican, uh, as as the complete like preppy embodiment. Um, so we uh, th- then we see uh, a scene uh, where uh, where Igby's in teen rehab. The rehab center is called Clipped Wings, which I think <laughs> is pretty funny and makes me think. You know, another great. Sar- you know, dripping with sarcasm, but so much fun. I mean, I had more fun with this than you did, but we made that point. Uh, you know, it makes me think of, of um, but I'm a cheerleader. You know, yeah. the same kind of like, let's make this movie with a sarcasm that yeah. we can, we can I'm put happy out you there. made that connection too, because that's audience what I was thinking part of. of. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's totally there. And there's just a great scene where he he he's he's totally flipped to the to therapist. And the therapist like slaps him in the head twice. Which yeah, is pretty <laughs> fantastic. Like that's who Igby is. He is a character yeah. who can who can test the patience of absolutely anybody. Um, Oliver, by the way, gets blamed a few times for being. A, she says a very bad older brother, and he says Igby is not my fault. Right. Um, and uh, and I also liked. Uh, I think at one point Mimi says that Igby's creation was an act of animosity, which I think is delightful. And and you know we, we quickly learn that Igby likes to smoke a lot of pot. Um, we're introduced uh, at the to, to the Rachel character when uh, you know Igby is uh, tempted to come to New York City. Uh, for a summer job by D.H., D.H., the Goldblum character, who is his godfather. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, oh, okay, you know, you want me to work for you? Fine. Uh, does it mean I can spend the weekends in the Hamptons? Yes, of course. Okay, fine. You're on. That's all he really cares about. <laughs> Only on the weekends. <laughs> and one of the things that we see, you know, which I think a lot of, you know, a lot of younger people, a lot of teens will understand there's these there's these really dizzy scenes, a party scene in the Hamptons. These really dizzy scenes you know, scored with handheld, you know, handheld camera going through crowds of older people that he has nothing in common with, but all of them want to rub his head. Yeah. Yeah. All of them want to ruffle his hair and, Oh, it's the cute little kid. And he's 17 years old. He's wearing a blazer with the collar up. He's kind Mm -hmm. of already got like his hackles up. He's already trying to bust the conventions of like this preppy world. And, um, what do they do? They treat him like he's five. You know, yeah, it's, right, and right. it's just, this, this nicely shot scene where he's just kind of running his way through the house to kind of get out to the beach because he actually spotted. And this is our introduction to the Claire Danes character yeah. of Sookie, mm-hmm. uh, who, um, yeah, she's and, great in this. I, I, I really liked her in it, too. She, she's wonderful. She's also like got a, she's got a different flavor of disaffected of kind of like she's in college. Theoretically, she's trying to figure out what she wants to do. Um, it, it, it has it has this weird interstitial 
like like I'm not in one, I'm in the uh, you know, I'm not in one phase, I'm in the other like uh quality to it. Um you know, this yeah. this limbo, this purgatory, purgatoria. Um for for her as well as him. But she's older, she's in college, she was working as a caterer there. And he tries to pick her up and there's just scenes where like they're on the beach and she's smoking cloves and he's like, wow, cloves, outstanding. You know, can I buy a clove from you? Which is so, it's so like, it's those, it's it, it like I respect, I, I don't know exactly why. Maybe I've been around those people. Maybe, you know, my exposure to New England, I don't know what it is, but I've been around people who smoke cloves and I've been around people who wanted to be known as people who smoked cloves. Uh-huh. And, and, <laughs> I mean, shit, you went to film school for Christ's yeah, sake. You had to, no, somebody well, who smoked. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure did. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So there's points at this where he refers to his brother studying neo-fascism at Columbia. Uh, a great little quip here about uh, Rilke, Rainer Maria Rilke, uh, mm-hmm. the, the poet where, like, everybody has given him um, the, uh, the Rilke book because, you know, which introduces you know as a oh you're having a rough time as a kid read this read this turn of the century piece of uh, a piece the of young um, poet yeah the young poet i, I can't remember if real kid was german or austrian but anyway um i did study him at one point but that's another story uh and he just goes that tortures me like i'm never gonna read that book that book doesn't yeah. speak to me uh right, but right. It, it, you know everyone thinks it's supposed to mm-hmm. everyone thinks the old conventions the classical the traditional the preppy whatever and, and right. you could already we already see that igby is going in a different direction needs to do something else needs to go get high break things you know just kind of find his way into being his own person yeah yeah definitely um that's interesting that you bring up the claire danes character kind of being in this like purgatory of sorts because in many moments she seemed almost like uh, i mean she's obviously like an equal to igby because they do seem to be in similar sort of dilemmas these ruts of they don't really know where they you know where they stand in life one Mm -hmm. you know igby's trying to escape his current world um Claire Danes' character has kind of got her step in this college world while she's still obviously, I guess you could say working class. I mean, she's certainly a, a, a young girl that's trying to, you know, make her I own think money. I think she's still, I mean, we see her mother's apartment in the city and uh, we, we we do learn that she is at least half Jewish, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, at some point he refers to her as a Jap. Yeah, I grew up, look, I grew up in that world. Uh, I definitely grew up in upper middle class, around upper middle class Jewish people. Uh, and and um, yeah, and, and maybe these are some of the things that I kind of relate to. But yeah, I, I think in the context of this movie, she might be working class, but she's I mean, yeah. she, she, she's still yeah. she's still up middle class without a doubt, yeah, for sure. Um, she's the only one that good. seems to be actually like working at any, you know, at any, at any point in the film that would be considered like a traditional job, which is interesting because right. we're just right. surrounded in this world of just like people that seem to have like ungodly amounts of money and they're doing nothing for it. But that's, you know, that's... but we also see different levels of this. We see certain levels yep. of struggle, especially among the Rachel character, the Russell character, mm-hmm. and the fact that Igby himself ends up doing a certain amount of work, whether he's, you know, badly trying to sell things on the sidewalk, which is also a very Manhattan thing, you know, set up on set a sit on the sidewalk with a, with a, with a, with a bunch of things in, a, in your bag and try to sell them. Yeah. Uh, or, or if he's, you know, selling drugs, you know, and we get some of these, like besides the Bogosian and, and Cynthia Nixon scene, 
we get you know him running into these two affluent, giggly um, young women who want to pay him with traveler's checks. Right. Um, <laughs> but like you do get these glimpses of like different parts of New York City, um, and different people therein, uh, and. Um, yeah, she she is a little bit closer, and she is introduced to someone who's working, but she's working in the Hamptons, and right. I, that distinction I think is important because there is this moment, and I think this is where we can sympathize, or empathize actually w- w- with Igby a little bit more, where he thinks they are equals, and the mm-hmm. movie does not rest with that. The movie doesn't it, that that does not last for very long. Yeah. Um, just like this phase in Igby's life where he's looking for something and he's looking for some kind of validation, some kind of identity and whatnot. And so is she, but they're not on the same path, even no. though they, even though they, they, they do have, they have struck up a certain friendship. Um, yeah, that's uh, kind of the, that's yeah, kind of the, one of the many dilemmas in this film. Cause yeah, obviously Igby kind of sees her as somebody that he can obviously relate to. They have similarities both in their lives and whatnot. And then he obviously uh, develops, a relationship with her that, you know, kind of goes beyond just a friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that is as quickly as it's introduced, it's uh, foiled because Claire Danes kind of makes this leap and ends up uh, sleeping with his older brother, Ollie. And so did, it, it, dating him for a little, for a short period of time anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. it's, it's like, yeah, it's like, it's kind of like the, the, the one, two punch. It's that, that's a, that's actually a, a rather tragic moment for Igby because it's like, he finally, it would appear so that he finds somebody that's sort of, um, a like-minded person in his circle. And then almost as soon as he opens up to this person, he's betrayed in a major way. So that's, that's something that I do and will sympathize with that character with certainly. And I think, I think Culkin does a really good job of that. Cause this is really the point where, where his facade is breaking down, where like the devices that brought him to this point, you know, he's 17 and he says his father has been six years in an institution. So it kind of started when he was 11, we could say yeah. where like the sarcasm and the hustle and so forth. And, and, and just like kind of being bored with everything, it, it's starting to come apart. And I think Culkin does a really good job where he doesn't know what he's looking for and he doesn't know, um, what the life he comes from can offer for him. And I'm not trying to say that he, you know, we know what he does in California at the end of the movie, but he's, he's looking, he's obviously seeking something. And I think I identify with that a certain amount. I think I understand the idea of, of wanting to figure out what it's about. You know, if your back, if your background is, is to blame for how you are and, and, you know, just the things that you, that a young adult will, try to figure out with is within their control and is with not, not in their control and, and what their character is made of. Um, I, I do love, I mean, there's just a beautiful scene where they really, they really meet up the first time on the street, Sookie and Igby where uh, the vegetarian joints and mm-hmm. the idea of let's go in the park and smoke some pot. That's a very New York city thing yeah. way before, way before pot was, you know, was legal. We can, you know, we can walk around and smoke a joint and get away with it. Like, there's a certain yeah. charm and a certain, like, I think that's, you know, even before I, even before I smoked weed, like, that was like a thing that's like parks in New York City and pot have always been associated. And it's always, it, it, I think it has, it's going to hold a certain amount of charm for people. Yeah. Um, yes. And so, yeah. So, then there's uh these there's a few great scenes at the Empire Diner. Let's not forget that they do share a I few milkshakes. 
a yeah. few milkshakes there uh, with some pretty interesting dialogue at different points. Uh, hmm. She accuses, uh, Suki accuses Igby of, of totally having a crush on her. And uh, it, it, there's some good banter between the two of them. Uh, and it's believable. And um, so he's been staying. He ends up staying, figuring out a way to stay with Rachel at Rachel's loft. We haven't talked much about her. She's an artist and she's got piercing eyes and dark makeup and so forth. Yeah, that's like an, those characters. Yeah, I'm happy we're talking about them. Amanda Pete and um, Jared Harris as characters. They're sort of the bohemian types, um, a culture of, you know, the New York City, Manhattan zeitgeist mm-hmm. that are they do they still exist anymore? I'm not even sure, really, at least to that degree that they're kind of. Uh, especially Jared Harris. Well, well, the thing the thing to say, uh, you know, for better or for worse, especially in the post Trump era or what have you, is that D.H. and Oliver won. Right. They, those are the those are the people who won New York, who won Manhattan. Do those people exist? I imagine they do. You know, I guess someone who people would. I'm sure I could. I know people who would argue that in 2002 they were, the, the artists were gone and whatnot. Uh, as Igby refers to it as, uh, it's like a boho version of the Island of Lost Toys, yeah, which I thought yeah. was pretty pretty great. Um, do those people still exist? Yes, but they're probably in Brooklyn and they probably can't afford Manhattan. But you know, what do I know? Maybe, maybe right. That's what they're still. But they're still viable. I'm sorry. They're still viable. Um, New York City downtown Soho archetypes that can be played in 2002. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that was the thing. It's like, you know, I, that's capturing those two characters like that. That also rings like a time capsule type moment where specifically in Manhattan, it's, you know, the, those those types of characters might be far and few between, as you mentioned, could be, try, you know, more or less in Brooklyn nowadays. But they were interesting. And I think it's been mentioned that the Amanda Peet character was influenced, um, who was the, from somebody in Andy Warhol's circle, okay. I think. I think she was supposed to be like, that was the inspiration for the Amanda Peet character. The name is failing me right now, but it was a woman in Andy Warhol's circle. And uh, that seemed like, okay, that rings kind of true if that, if she was the influence. So I, I liked those characters um, and Igby's introduction um, or relationship with Rachel was actually a, a pretty entertaining one um, mm. for the little that, uh, cause we, we see that she's a struggling artist and DH is her uh, kind of her landlord. And she's obviously living rent free in this big mass studio apartment um, because he's she's obviously sleeping with him Mm -hmm. Um, that seems to be the arrangement here you know kind of you know you know uh, living up to the fact that Goldblum is this really sleazy character in the film Um, and then later on we see that on you know she they're they're both these really cool kind of you know artistic adult types so you can see why Igby uh, you know kind of flocks to them because there's a certain level you know, a, a massive level of freedom to them, I would imagine. So he sees, I think that he spends more and more time with them in the film because he probably is testing the waters, thinking this is so, this is such a, a, a complete 360 from the world that I come from. Like, I could see myself operating in this one. And then I feel like that's kind of another tragedy that Igby's, you know, um, you know, his world is kind of revealed to is that it, it's not, as yeah. shiny as he perceives once he realizes the arrangement that she has with his godfather. Um, 
Amanda Peet's uh, heroin addiction and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. So there's a lot of really terrible, you know, dark things that are resting on the surface of this um, kind of idealistic world that he thinks he's found too. And then of course that crumbles. So there is is a certain, which speaks to disillusion, but I also think, I'm sorry to cut you off. No, no, that's, um, but I, I, uh, yeah, but you know, the more I think about it and watching it again, as I just did, like the Jared Harris character is also like, has his moments of emotional connection. Obviously the Rachel character, the Amanda P character, um, you know, she has sex with him and, and, and he imagines there's a certain level of intimacy there, mm-hmm. but um, she's really the person who is giving him a place to live. And then he's kind of trying to help her out. And there are these scenes it's like the real Amanda Pete does get some good work to do in this. There are those scenes where they dress Amanda Pete up, try to cover up her track marks to yeah. go see D.H., who is pretty. And, and it's a wordless scene. It's yeah. a crushing but wordless scene, but it's one of these like this is where this movie is showing you a little bit more human depth in these characters where we see the flash that Igby is drawn to. We see the bohemian lifestyle that 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 they, that they that might be the antidote to to who he is and where he comes from. Yeah. Um and and really the arc of this movie is that you can't escape necessarily where you come from. That's going to be a part of you. But you kind of deal with that and and move on, um, right. and and I you know there's there's just that, that there's a couple scenes when he's living with Russell because he ends up living with Russell. There's a yeah. scene with an angry drag queen and who ate my lucky charms, mm-hmm. which is a very like of the it's still I mean even in 2002 it still reads to me as like 90s rave culture, New York yeah. City culture uh which i kind of and of course you know it's it's early it's still it's still way before uh drag queens became mainstream and and popular and there's this quick scene where like i think russell's looking out the window and 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 he and igby have like a she never understood whatever you know i i can't remember the line offhand but uh but they have this moment and there is there is a different connection there but we were talking before we on we went on mic about the idea of art and commerce and how there is often the fight between the two but that's basically what you're seeing there like yeah. um even though we don't really see uh, what does he say uh she's a painter who doesn't paint and he's an actor who doesn't act or something to that effect yeah. even though we don't really see the artistic output of these people um, we do know that they're relying at different points on money, on the attention or just the grace of of someone like DH. Mm-hmm. And 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 it's interesting. Like I like I like Goldblum so much in the character of DH. He is kind of awful, but Sometimes it's like I'm kind of interested in why he's awful at different times. Um, but he, there are points where Russell and Rachel are both looking to DH for, you know, throw me a bone, throw me something, throw me yeah. something to keep me going uh, in the same way of that New York City hustle. And DH just, you know, I, he was a he, we see this point where Rachel's attracted to, to him. And then we see this other point where she no longer is. And he just looks down his nose at her like she's nothing. Like she's yeah. not human, and, and he does um, that too. He DH does that uh, when they're called to the hospital when Rachel has the overdose. It's 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 another level of you know DH's kind of smart swarminess of you know he can look down on people um, below him and, and he you know such as the case with Rachel, but he even does it in a very similar subtle way to Russell when Russell's just kind of giving him you know the heads up. Uh, giving you the heads up that um, 
you know, she uh, she's going to be OK. She's recovering. Um, and then he just doesn't even acknowledge him and kind of gives him a, a cold stare and walks away. So uh, DH is not immune to treating adults, uh, you know, people that he feels uh, that he finds lesser, uh, you know, just treating them in a really awful, shitty way. So DH, the DH character, I think, um, you know, like I said, I think he's um, kind of the perfect Goldblum character in a way because he could just keep talking and come off smooth. And you can see exactly how his um, charm has gotten him to where he is, where most things don't even bother him. But I think it's fascinating that the one thing that really does bother him, the point at which we get a real rise out of him is, uh, well, first, OK, there's, there's two scenes. There's the scene in which. Uh, it, 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 you know, Igby in doing the, in doing what he, what Rachel asked him to do in staying in, in the, in the loft, he's supposed to always have the key there. So in case DH comes by the, 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 the secret key, uh, he walks in on them and there is that great scene of Jeff Goldblum and his boxers where basically just talking over the whole scene uh, as if it's not actually happening. If he, as if he hasn't actually found his God, his married Godfather, um, you know, n- half naked after having sex with with the Rachel character, and of course he gives him money. Uh, he throws yeah. money at him and says, "Have some red meat, my eat some red meat, my boy." You know, and and so forth. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and that sets off things with with Rachel, of course. But then the real scene after the um, after w- w- we see the the scene of DH and Rachel, which she, where he rejects her. Um, there's uh there's the scene where um dh is 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 following or, or arrives at at rachel's loft and says to um to igby this is, this is a big spoiler but all we do is spoil stuff so whatever sure um and says to igby you know my boy he keeps calling him my boy and then he says my boy i think you've been pissing in the well from which you drink and then outside the door he Beats he beats up the shit uh, out of him. He beats the shit out of Igby, which I think is really interesting because he um, he's still relatively composed, or at least he is until the scene fades. Um, it's just how they edit out of that. But uh, you know, it, it's interesting to think about because um, this is actually like the again th- these characters are so composed and so detached and so. I only pay attention to the very few things that really, you know, matter to me, which are always like, you know, commerce or in his case, making money or whatnot, or, or the illusion of, of, of like a, a happy marriage with his, with his wife, Bunny, who is completely like airheaded. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but he loses it and it's, it's just, he constantly keeps calling him my boy. And he, it turns out, of course it is his boy and he is Igby's father. And I think it is it's a rare again, a rare motion a rare moment of emotional reaction to things. Of course, it's violence and it's it's kind of inexplicable and out of character and shocks us mm-hmm. as viewers. But it's like, you know, I think it actually shows a strange sense of morality on his part because it's like, wait a second, no, the, the the father and son cannot be having sex with the same woman, you know. Right. And, yeah. and, and, which which of course has happened. But by the time and it's late in the, in, the, in the arc of the story, by the time he puts that together or it bothers, you know, it gets to him. He's, uh, you know, his his only reaction that he, the, the only reaction he can muster is that of violence, is that of uh, striking and 
beating up uh, Igby. Right. Yeah, and you know, it's like uh, we get to the point uh, as we kind of wrap this film up um, where the sons are called, Susan Sarandon's character, who might I add, Kieran Culkin and Susan Sarandon were nominated for Golden Globes mm, um, yes, for this yes. film, which is very, like, again, uh, you know, a huge credit to, like, the little indie that could, uh, you know, getting this film funded, getting this incredible fucking cast that Burr Steers got, and then to kind of get the accolades that it did. All vastly impressive. Um, so Igby and Ollie are called to their mother's bedside, of, of course, for this assisted suicide. And as you uh, mentioned Earlier in the episode, it's at this moment where uh, Susan Sarandon kind of reveals like, oh, well, you know, D.H. is actually your father. And um, it's this moment where it seems <laughs> like, goes, no, <laughs> he's at the window and he turns, he goes, no. And she says, I'm glad I told you. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I'm glad we had this talk, yeah. which isn't even a talk. It's, you know, go on. Sorry. Yeah. Like a moment of it's like a statement of fact now, like not even a discussion. Um so, yeah, so they kind of see Susan Sarandon's character off. Uh, and it's really at this moment where, you know, there's nothing there's nothing truly left keeping Igby here in California, except seeing the guy, Bill Pullman, who he really viewed at his father. And again, a, another understated, really sweet mm -hmm. moment where he goes to visit his institutionalized um not exactly father, but still father figure, um, and kind of bidding him adieu before he finally flies off um, to California. I don't know if maybe this ending is probably a thing that probably uh, didn't gel with me that much, um, just because it's like, really, it took him all of this and all of this time to finally get the fuck out of there. But I understand that that makes sense, because this whole film, it this film isn't supposed to be like, this kid realizes from the get-go how shitty it is, and he's just going to flip the script and leave because he's 17 year old. He's 17 years old, and 17-year-olds can just do that. So I understand the whole idea of kind of uh, laying the groundwork, the whole film, for him to finally, you know, become his own person and make his own but way. He, but I would argue that he he feels like he feels like this is the next step because the other part is complete and that is that is basically that his mother is gone and we see what happens to the igby character again another burst of 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 emotion of conflicted emotion of hugging and also violence against his mother who's now dead at this point yeah um because now that phase is over like there is something still within both Iggy, Igby and Oliver that knows they're supposed to have affection for their mother that knows that despite just being like the money and the anchor to their world but there is a certain maternal connection there obviously yeah. Oliver has has worked his way around it even though he's still managing the family and dealing with the um the death and and and, and sorting out all the affairs but but Igby Igby is the younger one and he and he and it all comes out of him like he has there is this catharsis for him um anyway I I you know I I, I could keep going on with this but uh, I do like that moment yeah. though because like in that moment where yeah all of this emotion and kind of you know comes to a head where he's he's physically kind of punching away in and around Susan Sarandon's dead body yep. and and Ollie who's who's been pretty much you know cold the entire time as practically all of the characters are but there is that moment where I I, I you kind of feel like you know the ice 
around Ollie's personality is kind of beginning to thaw because Igby reveals that he's finally going to leave. And there's that that brotherly moment where he's like, like, could you at least leave us a number? Like he's at least showing that sure. he does give a shit to a degree because now they're all that they have. I know right. that's like that's kind of assuming a lot, but that's what I took from it. I kind of feel like he's kind of becoming an adult on his own now too. And he's like, we have to look out for each other to some degree. Like I have to like, at least know where you are at some point. So I did kind of like that because then as much as we've applauded Ryan Philippe for, you know, kind of really uh, living up to this role and really selling it really really (laughs) well as like this asshole. I do. I did like that very subtle moment. It's like, Oh, he kind of is human too. So that's kind of sweet. They are. But, but again, this movie and, and to its credit, in my opinion, to its credit, this movie is not shying away from complicated emotions. There is something there, but there is also like, well, you're my brother. So I guess I'm supposed to do this. And, and Ryan and the Oliver character says, I guess, there never really was much between us and then uh, and then igby uh, forces like a clumsy hug breaking the mm-hmm. it, oliver's drunk most of the movie by the way but he uh <laughs> the, the the point at which the point at which the um the point at which the uh what, what the uh uh the men are zipping up the body bag like yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and he has to sign the paperwork. They turn it around for him because he's so shit faced. Yeah. But yeah, Igby forces like a clumsy hug, breaks like what the glass that in, it, he yeah. drops the glasses in his hands. It's so unusual for them to have that. It's not clear. Just like the ending is not actually clear. I want to quickly just mention a couple of things. Um, sure. We didn't really talk too much about the production design of this movie. Uh, it is it is for what it is a relatively low budget movie. Yeah. Um, a big studio movie anyway, a middle budget, whatever at this point. But there's a few points um, I want to make. There are scenes with Russell and Russell's loft and it's contrasting with, uh, with Rachel's loft. There are these beautiful scenes in the place that Russell lives where it's dark indoors, but the, the, the rooms are full of lamps. There's always like, there's always figments of light, of elucidation, of of brightness, and that the room is still dark. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas her loft is empty and not crowded at all, but it's and it's still completely bright. And and there are these textures in this movie. Also, maybe this surely the strongest piece of symbolism in this is the spoon. There's this, this shot. Um, they've now fed out of clearly like high quality silver uh, saucer. They've fed um, uh, Mimi this poisoned uh, pudding, but the spoon falls on the ground, still coated with you know. There is this a very strong shot of the spoon hitting the ground, you know, ruminating on the idea of having a silver spoon in your mouth. The yeah. uh, the affluence, totally. uh, the things that are given to you that poison you or what have you just like there is a little bit of that thrown in there i think there's i think what i like about this movie is there's there is a certain amount of depth tucked away in it in in a study of all these superficial characters and i and i i feel like my life hasn't necessarily been about so many superficial characters like this but they speak a language that really resonates with me whether they're name dropping chote or 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 what have you or or the idea that um what does suki say she says that her mother teaches metaphysical poetry at vassar that's so vassar's 45 minutes away from here you know right right (laughs) it's so like the idea of metaphysical poetry is just funny in and of itself Um, I just wanted to throw those things out here. Uh, Suki at one point refers to Igby as, you know, you're a furious boy. 
And I think the arc that I like about this is he's not quite as furious. And maybe he's a touch less of a boy by the time we see him at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. There is, to me, an arc here. Um, I think besides my own New York City experiences, which are very weird and kind of like like uh, uh, interrupted at many points. Um, but there is a lot in a lot of the texture, a lot of the oddity of New York City. I still that still speaks to me. I took five years off. Uh, I dropped out of school to work in the music industry. Uh, I took five years off, ended up going back to school. This idea of like, what am I doing in between? I'm going to try to sort something out. What are you going to sort out? What do you really, you know, like there's a certain maturity, I think. Mm-hmm. Not that I've reached. Fuck that. Uh, no, <laughs> but there's a, certain, there's a certain maturity in the Igby character, I think, where he accepts who the part of him and where he comes from that he that he just pushed back again was against with so much bile and so much sarcasm. That part of him, I think he makes a certain peace with. And that's kind of what we see in him going back to his father and just rubbing his own father on the head. Yeah. Like you, you see that action again. There is, it's stilted, it's confused, it's complicated. What I like about this kind of indie film is it allows ambiguity and complicated characters. Um, but I think that we can see the arc in maybe not all the people in it, but there's a bunch of rises and falls, uh, or uh, you know, uh, uh, among these characters. And I think we could see how Igby isn't exactly the same at the end as he, as he was at the beginning. Um, that's really the thing for me. Like, yeah. the, 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 like I can, I don't know why, but I, I can identify. And it's a very Holden Caulfield type of thing. Of course. Also I can identify with, uh, the parts of Igby that are seeking something yeah. and aren't sure. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that I think we can both agree with, definitely. That is definitely something to latch on to. And you make really strong points for it. Um, I think the characters... I'm not trying oh, to change your opinion. No, no, no. And, and but I, I like that's what I think is so great about this format. It's about one of us telling us telling the other about how much they love something and maybe kind of bringing us over to a certain point of view that we didn't see initially. And I think that you've done that definitely in, in certain aspects of this film. I think I had to talk it out to figure out what it is about this movie that I like. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I'm not I'm not going to say I think it's a masterpiece, but I think that you're you've you've absolutely hit upon something where there is something there's depth to these characters. There's complexities in these characters. And I think that if you can somehow get through to the chilly, cold exterior of their personalities and their lives mm-hmm. and the environment that they come across. It's asking a lot from an audience. It certainly is asking a lot from an audience, but I think if you can chisel away at that and get in, I think that you're going to see a lot in these characters that you can probably relate to more than you would think at first glance. And mm-hmm. I thank you for that. Cause I definitely come around more to Igby's point of view, but I'm still going down saying Bill Pullman is the goddamn fucking center of the universe in this film. He's I, just... I, I can't. I mean, he's he's a he's a terrific, terrific actor. There's no so question free. about that. I so want to quickly. OK, so just briefly give you some of the idea of some of the things that were going on around this. And um, yeah, you know, we, 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 we can say all the, the standard things about like, remember when. Uh, but looking at some of the movies that were out at this time. We have Stealing Harvard, uh, hmm. the Banger Sisters, as I said, also with Susan Sarandon or Sarandon. I guess. Sarandon, yeah. Uh, 
the the tuxedo, uh, fear.com, one hour photo, the good girl, triple X, Apollo 13, barbershop, the overlooked uh, Walter Hill prison movie, Undisputed, which mm-hmm. I really like. Uh, was it my big freak fat Greek wedding? Um, mm-hmm. I said barbershop already. Uh, Sweet Home Alabama, yep. City by the Sea, and Spirited Away. Wow. Which is like an amazing. And I didn't even, I, I didn't, there's more I didn't even mention, uh, but um, an amazing array of stuff, even yeah. in 2002, even in, you know, about 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, amazing array of, of different things that came out at this time. Um, I want to also I'll get to some reviews in a second. But yeah, so Burr, Burr Steers is named apparently after his ancestor, Aaron Burr, mm-hmm. which is kind of weird to name anybody after a notorious uh, turncoat, but there you are. Um, <laughs> there you are. Yeah. Uh, written and directed by by him. This is his first movie. He made three other movies and has been doing television as well. He made 17 again in 2009, Charlie St. Cloud to, in 2010, and Pride and Prejudice and Zombies 2016, which is either incredibly bad. I haven't seen any of these, I admit. Yeah. It's, it, it's entirely incredibly bad or maybe somewhat interesting but by 2016 i wasn't interested in seeing any more zombie uh yeah. movies that were new uh but prior to that and interestingly enough burr steers started as an actor uh and I, yeah. I i i caught one mention of him being a theater director which is interesting but he was mm-hmm. in the um Raimi, uh adjacent intruder from 1989 that's the, right uh, supermarket horror movie right yeah. uh he shows up in pulp fiction yeah he and- plays roger right yeah yeah, and the last days of disco, which I think is very interesting. Uh, this movie was produced by a, a whole slew of people. Like, there's li- there's uncredited line producers and co-producers. One of them is is uh, like a, a, a first name only listed on IMDb. But the, the 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 two that I took away was was Marco Weber, who has a whole slew of indies and some television credits, and Lisa Tornell. Uh, one of the other producers who, who produced The Craft and Jawbreaker, and yeah. you know indie movies of this ilk and also too i think um one interesting tidbit is burr steers's uncle is gore vidal and he appears in a in a brief acting role which i thought was pretty interesting so very cool to see him pop up on screen excellent uh almost you know the the, the few really bad reviews uh i found few because almost every almost every review of this movie which had a limited theatrical release yeah it seemed to be pretty unanimously uh liked by critics yeah 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 the the some of them really took issue with the whole um catcher in the rye issue catcher in the rye thing but uh and and a few of them were like these people are so cold and i I, you know there's no one to like in this movie but that that was definitely the the uh the minority uh it opened limited release uh 13th september 2002 um, some great, some great lines. Uh, David Germain, uh, the a- AP writer, uh, sharp tongued coming of age and ticked off at the university tale. I thought that was pretty interesting. He says this is the sharpest thing since Ghost World. Ghost World had only come out yeah. the year before. Mm-hmm. Um, at last, a smart, caustic, teen centered film was the headline for his review, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. He, he, he talked about uh, the idea that these are surface dwellers, that these are shallow characters, but but that they still they still th- manage to thread a, uh, a story that's that's fun to watch mm-hmm. again, based on the uh, dialogue. Um, 
Let's see. Ty Burr from the Boston Globe uh, says uh, Igby goes down, seized with relentless teen cynicism. Relentless teen cynicism was probably a goal for me as as a a, a kid. I I can say that. Um, (laughs) And uh, let's see. He says this is probably the finest film adaptation of Catcher Catcher in the Rye that Salinger never wrote. Uh, it's blisteringly rude, scarily funny, scr- uh, let's see, uh, sc- sorrowfully sympathetic to the damage it surveys, which I think is, is a nice that's way pretty, of putting yeah, it. And uh, Catherine Newton referred to it as an updated Manhattan version of Harold and Maude. Very interesting. So overall, some pretty uh, well-received criticism um, from you know the reviewers at the time. But uh, yeah, I mean, again, I, I applaud Dino for kind of, you know, enlightening me on certain things that he obviously uh, found, uh, you know, was hit more deeply with with this than I was initially. But I've definitely come around to some of the things that we've talked about. Um, again, Bill Pullman is really the the focus of this film for me. I think that he's really the thread that kind of, you know, ties me up emotionally. And then, of course, by the end, it's Kieran Culkin's character that I definitely start to come around to more as much as he can be a little insufferable for um the uh, greater majority of the film. Um, but overall, um, yeah, I think that might just wrap it up for this installment. Yep. That's about right. And, uh, you know, made my argument on this one. I'm sorry. You didn't see quite what I saw, but, uh, I don't know. It grew on me. I don't know. I don't know why. And, uh, I definitely, I think, you know, with about 20 years time, uh, past or almost 20 years time, I'm starting to really look at the two thousands as, um, Especially, uh, you know, we, we talked about this on another podcast, uh, especially this period of time where a lot of people were doing some of their last features that yeah. uh, were going to end up in television. And, and and there's still there's still stuff to check out. Uh, and and uh, I don't know if there's anyone out there who thinks that the 2000s are too soon to uh, still have gems in them. I think this one's a gem. Mike, maybe not so much. Well, I'm getting there. What are you going to do? Give me 20 years. <laughs> Good man. Good man. Well, I think that's going to, like I said, wrap it up for I Eat Movies number 15. Very happy to be bringing this first time format back. A little bit later on this season, it will be Dino's first time with another one of my picks. Uh, yes. TBD for sure. A um, little bit of house cleaning. Um, oh, yes. We were happy to uh, get this episode in on time, of course. Uh, but there's going to be a little bit of a delay before our third episode because by the time you hear this recording i want to be on vacation <laughs> long away well deserved well deserved vacation thank you buddy um yeah so i will be mia for uh roughly two weeks so there's going to be a little bit uh of a delay not too long but a little bit of a delay and we will be back with our third installment of i eat movies for this season um can't really announce yet what we're doing, but I think that we're hopefully trying to stray towards something in the 50s or potentially the 60s. That's our hope, at least. That is our hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we dangled you into the 2000s, into this millennium, uh, just for a short period of time. Uh, fear not on that one. But, uh, oh, well, you know, I just totally forgot something. We eat movies, and we talked about the milkshakes, but uh, Igby Goes Down has two references to cereal. Do you know what they are? Lucky Charms. <laughs> and... Uh, what was the other one? Oh man, oh, I fuck. Don't see out. many good meals in this movie. So yeah, uh, uh, the Lucky Charms actually appear, but uh, one of the lines that um, uh, 
that uh, Igby says in reference to the Pullman character is uh, he's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Right. There it is. Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. There it is. So, so see? that's it. We're going to eat more movies. You should eat more movies. <laughs> that is My true. friend, we will do this again very soon. And uh, thank you to everybody. Everybody out there who uh, it was really sweet when you everyone said they missed us. Um, Wasn't and, that nice? Uh, yeah, I, I, you know they must not know us in person. I'll say that. <laughs> but um, yeah, so we'll be back soon enough. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, I eat movies podcast and uh, Mike. I think we're full for the night. I'm pretty stuffed. So until next time, guys, eat more damn movies. Thanks, Dino. Thank you, sir.